Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome to the 200th episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me. As always, I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Visit patreon.com slash talking tutors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family to instantly unlock access to 126 exclusive posts, including 22 audio releases and 30 videos. Patron-only monthly live talks and giveaways are among the other perks. May's prize is a copy of Tudor Mystery, The Master of the Countess of Warwick, published to accompany the exhibition Tudor Mystery, A Master Painter Revealed. The lucky winner will also receive a portrait miniature of Thomas Nivett. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode, I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about popular representations of Anne Boleyn is Dr. Yasmin Hashimi. Dr. Hashimi is a public humanities postdoctoral fellow at the Centre for Renaissance Studies. Her book project, Tudorotica, traces the eroticization of Tudor queens across centuries and genres, from 16th century letters and plays to TV shows and fan fiction. Yasmin is interested in how popular media and images of the pre-modern period challenge or affirm public understandings of the past, particularly with regards to sexuality and race. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles.
Welcome to Talking Tutors, Yasmin. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm really excited to be chatting with you today. Can we start with you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background? Sure. Well, my name is Yasmin Hashimi, and I'm currently a Public Humanities Postdoctoral Fellow with the Center for Renaissance Studies at the Newberry Library in Chicago. Quite a mouthful, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Uh, prior to working at the Newberry, I received my PhD in English literature from the University of California at Davis. So my early research was on 16th and 17th century epistolography or letter writing. And I spent many years researching and poring over Henry VIII's love letters to Anne Boleyn. And I then began working on popular representations of pre-modern queens across various media which led to a dissertation about the ways that Tudor queens are sexualized in Tudor England and beyond. Fabulous. And I'm just sorry, I'm just looking at your lovely t-shirt. You've got the Tudors on your t-shirt. Our listeners can't I see. I do. I thought it was, I thought it was appropriate. Yeah. And I'm wearing my bee, bee earrings. So we're, we're doing well together. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we dive in to look at popular representations of Anne, Anne Boleyn, that is, I'd love to hear about your current book project. So, Tudorotica. So, what inspired this particular study? Well, Tudorotica is based off of my dissertation, and it traces the eroticizations of England's Tudor queens across a range of popular genres from 16th century letters and plays to historical dramas and fan fiction today. And it was really inspired by the plethora of material that's out there about the Tudors and popular culture and how Anne is a flashpoint for discussions about female sexuality, power and vulnerability. So I'm really interested in how the questions that generally circulate around Anne are linked to her sexual agency and how that's expressed in popular media. So Anne is very much at the heart of Tudorotica, but my book also includes other Tudor queens like Catherine of Aragon, Jane Seymour, basically all of Henry's wives and his daughters, but I'll leave them for future conversations because we are all about Anne Boleyn today. We sure are, but that sounds absolutely wonderful. And when can we expect that? No pressure on you, but when can we expect to see that book? I'm still turning it into a manuscript. So all of your positive energy my way is greatly appreciated. I'm sure anyone who's finished uh, a PhD has felt the exhaustion and wanting to take a little bit of a break before diving into a book, but I'm so excited about the work that I'm doing that I very much want to get it out there so I can join the conversation. And it would be amazing to see my book alongside so many other fabulous books, including yours. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I think it'll be a wonderful addition to, to all our conversations about Anne. So I'm very much looking forward to it. So thank talk you. to us a little bit about the shifting representation of Anne Boleyn from the 16th century to the present day. Well, it's going to take a little bit of time. So That's I hope okay. the listeners are like, are in it for the long haul. <laughs> They're very committed. Don't worry. <laughs> so I'll start with William Shakespeare and John Fletcher's play, Henry VIII, or All is True, which is one of the earliest representations of Anne in popular culture. It's a collaborative play that was originally published in 1613. And it's set around the time of the King's Great Matter. So this is when Henry wants to annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. So Anne first appears on stage during a banquet scene where she's noticed by all of the men at court, including Henry, who singles her out from the other ladies and dances with her and is so smitten that he begins courting her. 
Now, the next time we see Anne, she's in her rooms, presumably with a servant who's called the old lady. And they're talking about the possibilities of what might happen now that Henry's interested with Anne and has begun courting her in earnest. And the old lady says that she would trade her maidenhead for the crown in a heartbeat. But Anne is much more hesitant at the idea of replacing Catherine and marrying the king. And so this turns into a quite explicit scene where the old lady starts talking about how Anne's womanly heart and how her fair lady parts will pave her way to the king's bed and to a position of power. So she's basically telling Anne to make herself sexually available to the king because the payoff is worth it. And she's quite explicit in the way she does this. She talks about Henry and Anne having sex. She makes sexual innuendos about Anne's fair parts being stretched by Henry. So there's uh, no mistaking the way that she is sexualizing Anne as well. And even though Anne insists that she doesn't want to marry Henry, the next time we see her on stage is during her coronation. So this is quite startling and really drives home the idea that Anne had no agency in this situation. And so during the coronation, which is, I believe, the first ever staged coronation, very fabulous and ostentatious and majestic, which I think Henry would approve of, Anne doesn't speak at all. And in fact, she has fewer lines than most characters in the play. So she's simply an ornamental figure on display, and especially in this case at her coronation. So we are privy to a conversation between two gentlemen who are in attendance. They're gazing upon Anne. They begin fantasizing about her and saying how lucky Henry is to have her. And they even go so far as to imagine her in Henry's arms and in his bed. This play shows how Anne is already a figure of erotic investment in the early 17th century. And this isn't the first time that Anne is eroticized on stage in the pre-modern period. John Banks's play, Virtue Betrayed, which was published 70 years later, is much more explicit than Shakespeare and Fletcher's play. A very brief watered-down synopsis for listeners who aren't familiar, Anne and Henry Percy are star-crossed lovers, torn apart by Henry, who's a tyrannical king and husband, and Cardinal Woolsey is plotting with Henry's ex-mistress, Bessie Blount, in an effort to destroy Anne. This is quite dramatic, very soap opera-like. One of the ways he tries to destroy Anne is by convincing Henry that Anne has been unfaithful. So Woolsey has these interesting and sneaky scenes where he talks about how he's talking to Henry and he says, you know, Anne dreams about her former love interest, Percy. And he paints this seductive fantasy of a sleeping Anne becoming aroused by sexual dreams about Henry Percy. And he goes on to say that these dreams whet her appetite and that she then uses Henry to slake her lust. And I'm only mentioning brief examples for the sake of time, but I think they really show how early modern male writers like Shakespeare and Fletcher and Banks set Anne up as a subject of male fantasies. And this lasts for hundreds of years and is then picked up by popular media, including Showtime's The Tudors, uh, which was aired from 2007 to 2010. And what I think is so interesting is that the other two examples I've discussed represent Anne Port pornographically. And we also see that in the Tudors. But because the Tudors is on TV, they can exploit that visual medium and make everything more explicit by not only drawing attention to Anne's body, but by showing it undressed and in various positions. So during the first season, 
we see Henry VIII, who's played by Jonathan Rhys Myers, and Anne Boleyn, played by Natalie Dormer, in a game of cat and mouse where he's chasing her and she runs away. Henry finds Anne lying across a platform near the royal throne. And he, as he puts his hand up her skirts, she says, like, no, not like this. I want you to seduce me, write me letters, ravish me. And then she disappears behind a closed door. Henry then opens the doors and she's standing there naked and coyly covers herself. This scene then cuts to Henry waking up in a cold sweat and we find out that it was just a dream. So Henry's fantasies are really a visual reality for viewers who sees Anne's naked body and are invited to share in his fantasy. And the Tudors does this in a way that was unavailable for stage theatrical performances in the pre-modern period. And then the other example I'll give is in season two, which is later in their relationship when after they're married, Anne and Henry are already on the rock. Um, and Henry walks into Anne's rooms where music is playing and people are dancing. And he tells the musicians to play a volta. Now, the volta is a dance that includes a movement that were considered scandalous by some people in the 16th century, as you may know. And it became synonymous with sex and seduction. So Henry and Anne's seductive dance is interspersed with scenes of them having rough sex. And after they finish having sex, Anne tries to take advantage of Henry's satiated state by telling him that she can't conceive a son while Catherine and Mary are alive. And Henry has this moment of shock, and then he's like, are you asking me to kill them? Anne doesn't respond. She begins a trail of kisses down his body, moving out of view of the camera. So this shows how Anne is using sex to sexually manipulate her husband, as well as to maintain her power and position. So... So this pornographic portrayal of Anne is more explicit because instead of people just mentioning the fantasies they're having about her, we're seeing them play out on screen. One of the next times we see Anne Boleyn is in Stars as the Spanish Princess from 2019 to 2020. She's not a central character in the series. She appears very briefly in one scene in the first season when she's a child, and we don't see her again until a few episodes into the second season when she becomes a lady-in-waiting to Catherine of Aragon. But as we all know, the as the story goes historically, well, it's not to say that historical dramas follow uh, history closely, but we know that Catherine and Henry's relationship begins to fall apart, and Henry begins courting Anne, and we see that on the show. And in one scene that's really, to me, very interesting, Catherine of Aragon is walking around the palace grounds late one night and she sees Henry and Anne meeting in the gardens and she watches as Anne, who's played by Alice Noak, removes her robe, revealing her naked body to Henry, who's standing just a few feet away. And Catherine is just devastated because she loves Henry so much. So again, Catherine is the main character of the series. It doesn't make sense for Anne to be on the periphery, but because Anne's character isn't fully developed, we're presented with another example of Anne as an object of desire. And so when we get to 2021 with Channel 5's Anne Boleyn, which is a psychological miniseries that takes place during the last three months of Anne's life, we get a little bit of a shift in the narrative. Anne Boleyn is played by the fabulous Jodie Turner-Smith, who is the second, second actress of color to play Anne and the first Black actress. And like previous depictions, there is a focus on Anne's sexual agency. We see a very heavily pregnant Anne having sex with Henry, who's played by Mark Stanley. 
there's another scene where Anne and Henry are in a verbal altercation that turns violent and leads to rough sex, which is similar to what we've seen on the Tudors. Uh, but one of the ways this show is different from previous representations is in the way it shows the physical realities of childbirth and miscarriage. So there's still a focus on Anne's physical body, but there's a different approach. When Anne suffers from her miscarriage, she wakes up very distraught and she begins lactating after the loss of her child. There's another scene where she wears a corset too soon after childbirth because she's forced to compete with Jane Seymour for Henry's affection. And as she's walking out of the room, the camera pans down her dress to the floor where we see drops of blood have fallen. So she's subjecting her body to, you know, this physical pain because she knows the stakes. So it's a very different way of thinking about Anne and her body. And what I love about this series is it also invites us to think about the intersections between sexuality and race. What does it mean when a Black woman is playing a historical figure who was accused of adultery and beheaded? So when we think about the realities of Anne's tragic demise, fan fiction also becomes a popular site for fans to turn to because they're often driven by the need for a more satisfying ending than can be found in history books or in popular representations on the page and screen. And so they now have the opportunity to rewrite Anne's story. So although a lot of fan Tudor fan fiction in them and often escapes Henry and the hangman's axe and receives her happily ever after, which many of us would have wanted for her, in Tudor fan fiction, she's also frequently eroticized. And one of the ways this happens is she's often given different sexual partners. Now, this could be anyone from Charles Brandon to Jane Seymour to Edward Cullen from Twilight. So people get really creative about the ways they imagine and finding love in her happily ever after. But what I think is the most interesting is that out of all of Henry's wives, Anne is the subject of most Tudor fan fiction. And she's the most frequently eroticized in those stories. So it really makes me think that even as we imagine new possibilities for Anne, fans still sometimes perpetuate the ways that she was eroticized in previous depictions within popular culture. So there's a lot there to work with. There sure is. And I can totally understand why you're so passionate about this work. It's it's really fascinating to, to think about all of that. And I think it's also really interesting to think about what these representations that you've been talking about tell us about the societies in which they were kind of created and popularized. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, Susan Bardot has a wonderful book I'm sure you're familiar with called The Creation of Anne Boleyn. And in it, she argues that each generation essentially creates its own Anne Boleyn that reflects the society in which it was produced, but that there is always a default Anne who has long been imagined as a scheming woman. And that seems like something that's inescapable. And I, I think of it similarly. I certainly agree with her, but I also think that that default Anne is often sexualized, hypersexualized, in fact, and eroticized. And so the amount of Tudor period dramas we've seen in the past 20 years, I think really shows a growing interest in the stories and histories of women who have been sidelined and overshadowed by Henry. I think we've seen a shift away from the male-centered narratives to really focus on not just his wives, but now different queens are getting their time in the sunlight. Um, as much as we love Anne Boleyn, and I believe 
we're still going to see many, many more iterations of her across media. We're also seeing shows about Catherine of Aragon. There's one about Catherine Parr on the horizon. Catherine Parr was also featured in Stars as Becoming Elizabeth. So, you know, we're getting, we're getting some more action from the other queens, which is, I think, quite exciting. And I think that Tudor period dramas really shed light on how queens negotiated the patriarchy. And one of the ways that period dramas shows this negotiation is actually through sex. So recent representations on screen often reimagine Anne, as well as like other Tudor queens, as these proto-feminists who express desire and are sexually liberated. But as popular representations reimagine Anne as more feminist, they also inevitably eroticize her in the process. And part of the reason this happens is because there's, in general, there's been an increase in sex and nudity on TV, particularly with premium channels like HBO, Showtime, and Stars. Of course, Showtime is the network that produced the Tudors. Stars produced the Spanish Princess, as well as several other adaptations from Philippa Gregory's novels. And I think these representations are an important reminder that, like, however much has changed in our understanding of gender and sexuality, the depiction of Anne as a sexual seductress remains surprisingly consistent. And so I'm really interested in seeing if historical dramas will move away from pornographic representations of Anne in favor of more actually feminist portrayals, or if Anne will continue to be sexually objectified on screen and in historical fiction novels and in other various reimaginings. Yeah, that's a very good question. You, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because you don't often see, well, I don't know if you ever see Catherine of Aragon portrayed in the same, quite the same way as Anne Boleyn. So it's, it is, it brings up a lot of interesting questions. And I, I would definitely love to see Anne's religious side brought to life a little more in, in popular fiction and popular representations. Yes. But of course, it's not, you know, when you're putting it on screen, maybe it's not as interesting to people, but that's what I would definitely like to see. So I recently read a really wonderful article that you wrote, very thought-provoking essay, which is called A Beauty Not So Whitely and Berlin and the Optics of Race. So in that, you argue, among other things, that Anne's not-so-whitely skin and dark features are, and I quote this, part of a system of race-making in 16th century England. So can you talk to us a little bit about your research on the racialization of Anne Boleyn and maybe just unpack this a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, well, I was really struck by how Anne's contemporaries use signifiers of otherness to describe her. Those of us who are familiar with Anne are very aware that her French upbringing and mannerisms are one of the ways that she was differentiated from English-born women at court. And the physical descriptions of Anne have made very clear that she was not the typical English rose with pale skin, light hair, and light eyes. She's often described in a way that, thanks to the work of Kim Hall and other scholars, we now know we're used to describe people of color at the time. So there's a focus on the darkness of her features, which includes her eyes and her hair, but also extends to her skin. And of course, in this period, uh, a part of race making, how race is made, goes beyond just the skin color. It includes facial features. It includes hair. Sometimes it includes religion, social class. It's a very malleable concept, very different from the way we imagine it today. So I was really interested in thinking about these descriptions, like when Woolsey calls Anne the night crow, or when she's referred to as a brunette, which in the 16th century actually refers to dark skin 
rather than just hair color as it does today. And I was particularly struck by a Venetian diplomat who noted Anne's swarthy complexion. So swarthy is to be of dark of hue, black or blackish, dusky. It's a word that was often used to describe Black people and North Africans in the 16th century. So I thought it was really interesting when you put all of these descriptions together and, and think about like, well, what does this mean? We've we have portraits of Anne and and she doesn't look dark, right? And I also had to take a step back and say, well, a lot of these portraits th that we do have, some of them have been disproved. We've realized that maybe this isn't Anne Boleyn or they've been painted posthumously. So we don't actually know what she looked like. There's a sketch for sure, but you know, we aren't quite sure. And I initially assumed that much like accounts that claim that Anne had a sixth finger, um, the descriptions that associated her with darkness were from her enemies. And while I was doing, and that was initially the way I was approaching this research. I was like, this is just another way for her enemies to sort of take her down. And as I was conducting my research, I was surprised to find that all the accounts, whether it's from people who were friends of the Boleyns or their enemies, seemed to agree that Anne not only had dark features, but that her skin wasn't white enough. And I think this shows how, as Francesca Royster has argued and other scholars, that there were variations of whiteness in the period, and those variations mattered. In fact, we have a we have record of a courtier mentioning how relieved the court was when Elizabeth was born and had her father's coloring instead of Anne's. And so this anxiety over skin color was very much present in the 16th century and within the Tudor court. And I thought that was really exciting and interesting. And it just adds another layer to the way we reimagine Anne. Absolutely. I found that article really fascinating and I'll put a link to it in our show notes. So if our listeners would like to, to read it, they can. I actually looked into contemporary accounts of Anne Boleyn's appearance really closely for a lecture I did recently. And I think people would be surprised to hear that we have no contemporary accounts of what Anne's hair color was. You know, we all assume that, of course, it was dark and black hair, but we actually don't have any contemporary accounts about Anne's hair. They come a little bit later. People do mention her eyes. It's her always eyes, the eyes. Yes. The eyes we were have... dark and beautiful. Absolutely. <laughs> her eyes dark and beautiful, but the hair, because, you know, people often think about Anne with black hair. This idea that she had <laughs> black hair is very much a later kind of thing. But it's fascinating, isn't it, when you start digging in and you think, oh, I was so sure about this, but actually it's not, it's not yeah. substantiated in the sources. It's very interesting. So, and also we realized that some of the histories that we were reading by scholars, perhaps even in the Victorian period, were wrong about things. And when you try to track down those sources from the, the Tudor period, you sometimes can't find them. And I've been on many wild goose chases like that. And then you're like, wait, well, then how do we know this to be true today? Like, why do we imagine her with dark hair if you know, we, there are actually no contemporary accounts that mention it. And so I'm fascinated by that fact that you just mentioned. And I think it also shows how there's so much for us to learn. And it's so exciting. Oh, absolutely. And look, I've spent many hours down many different <laughs> rabbit holes and dragged other people in with me, which is my, my specialty. So it is, it's so fascinating. And you've talked a little bit about shows like the Tudors, which of course have brought lots of people to the period. So can you tell us a little bit more about how the Tudors actually shape the way audiences think about the past and imagine Henry VIII's court as well. Yeah, well, for better or worse, I think, as you said, they have a significant impact on the way audiences think about the past. 
specifically with regards to gender, sexuality, and race. And my hope is that historical dramas are a gateway or an entry point for viewers who are interested and are perhaps less familiar with the Tudors or 16th century England. So for example, like the Tudors features all six of Henry's wives. The only two wives that we ever see naked or having sex with Henry are Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard. Now, these are the same wives who are accused of adultery and beheaded. These two women are the one who are the most frequently eroticized on screen. So if you are watching the Tudors and you have no sense of the history, in some ways it really does perpetuate the idea that these two wives were the most lusty and sexual and somehow deserved what happened to them. And so I think that can be a little bit tricky to deal with. I don't watch historical dramas for accuracy. I don't think it's something that's possible to attain. But I also realize, especially after um, doing a lot of research related to fan studies and reading a lot of viewer reactions going on, I mean, way back when the Tudors first came out, I was on like every message board, you know, seeing how people were reacting and it was really interesting to to see fans saying how, oh, I saw this, I saw this sex scene of Charles Brandon played by Henry Cavill, and I felt like it really made me understand the Tudor period. So there's this interesting connection, and I was like, how? I watched it, and I was just thinking how handsome he looked. But I think there's this really interesting connection between sex and knowledge and this idea that characters that when they're stripped down you're somehow getting to the, like the true core of who they are um, and there's also of course a lot of conflation between actors and their characters that happen on the other hand I do think historical dramas can also challenge preconceived notions about the past for example with a Spanish princess it's one of the first Tudor historical dramas that features actors of color specifically black actors in important speaking roles I think that's quite significant. We have Stephanie Levi John as Lena de Cardones, who is Catherine's most trusted lady in waiting. She is a Black woman whose parents converted from Islam to Catholicism. We have Aaron Cobham as Oviedo, who's the Muslim Moor and a soldier in Catherine's employ. And he's Lena's love interest. And we also get to see John Blank, who was the royal trumpeter of both Henry VII and Henry VIII, and Nagasi, who's a Black musician in the Scottish court of James and Henry's sister, Margaret Tudor. And prior to this show, we haven't really seen people of color in Tudor period dramas, which might lead viewers to believe that there weren't people of color in the Tudor court or in England. And that's contrary to what historical records tell us. So I think historical dramas can be really useful in diversifying our understanding of Tudor England. Why do you think that it's it's so important to diversify this particular picture of Tudor England? And you're right, you know, I've seen arguments people having on Twitter about this and no, there weren't people of colour, of course there were, and you only need to, to sort of immerse yourself in the sources for a short period to know there was great diversity in Tudor London and Tudor England. But why do you think it's so important now to diversify that picture? Well, I think, as you said, there are so many viewers who don't know this history. And so it's important for people to see it on screen. It gives us a more complete picture of life in Tudor England. The Tudors were both aware of and interested in people from other countries, including countries beyond Europe. We know Spain was already conquering and colonizing countries and England had ties with Spain. 
Henry VII commissioned John Cabot, an Italian navigator, to explore North America. You know, and the English exploration of the Americas continues under Henry's granddaughter, Elizabeth. There's records of at least one occasion where Henry VIII participated in a mask and dressed up as a Turk. How would he know what a Turk looks like? You know, and so I think this um, invites interesting questions about what other countries the Tudors were aware of beyond just you know, we know there were Spanish ambassadors and French ambassadors, Venetian ambassadors. Were there Chinese ambassadors? Were there ambassadors from West Africa? You know, how can we paint a more vivid portrait of just how like dynamic the Tudor court was and also England was in its awareness of other peoples and, and places? Um, and I think period dramas like The Spanish Princess and Bridgerton have shown that there's a real interest in seeing more diverse stories told on screen. And my hope is that these diverse depictions will inspire people who are less familiar with topics like race and sex in Tudor England or the Regency period to ask questions about the past and do further reading. Because then we find out like, wow, I certainly, of course, I grew up in the United States, so I actually came to the Tudors quite late. I'm, I don't want to say I'm embarrassed to say, but I didn't really learn about the Tudors until I was an undergraduate. And I know for people who are from England or Commonwealth countries, it is a part of the education you learn about like English monarchs. So not everybody is privy to, to learning about British monarchs, but also we, we don't, if we do learn about them, we're probably not getting those details about, you know, what countries they were, um, they were familiar with, where are these points of cross-cultural contact between the tutors and people from other countries. And I think that's really exciting. And I will say that like, I have a whole PhD on the tutors and I, you know, did an undergraduate thesis on the tutors as well. I've been studying them and thinking about them for well over the, a decade. And I still learn new things every day. And I think that's what's so exciting as I'm, you know, researching Anne Boleyn and thinking about race making in the Tudor period, I'm learning about it. I'm learning about how there were Black people in the Scottish court during the Tudor period, you know? So this isn't just sort of some secret knowledge from on high that you gain in your doctoral program. It's from reading and research and conversations with people who are doing similar research in adjacent areas and fields. And we all put it together to get a better understanding of what's going on in the Tudor period. What a wonderful answer. And I completely agree with you. I always say I'm just always a student. I love learning. But that's, yeah. you know, and there's lots of great projects now looking at those cross-cultural connections, which is really exciting. But as you say, yes, I think there's space for definitely more work and more work for a general audience so that we can all understand this, this diverse picture of Tudor England. So when it comes to Anne Boleyn, why do you think the public is just absolutely insatiable? They can't get enough of reading documentaries, you know. Why is that, do you think? I mean, this is the million-dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> sure. Well, Anne Boleyn is such an interesting historical figure, and she was at the heart of drama and scandal in the Tudor court. And I just think about all of the sort of big flashy headlines we think about when we think about Anne Boleyn. You know, Henry courted her for almost a decade. He breaks with the Catholic Church. He annuls his marriage with his wife of 24 years, changes the line of succession. You know, each one of those examples alone is compelling. But I also think that the fact that we have such little existing materials in Anne's own words leads to lots of speculation and a desire to fill in those gaps because we know that Henry attempted to erase her. We do not have 
Anne's responses to Henry's love letters. It is my dream. Listeners, if you hear the sound of my voice and what have you, somebody please find them. <laughs> because I would love to know, you know, what she was saying. We know that, you know, Henry changed the architecture of Hampton Court to remove her initials. He really wanted to erase her. But yet we find her in letters and dispatches because so many of Anne's contemporaries are talking about her but she rarely speaks for herself. So we have to do a lot of detective work and piecing together of documents, looking at accounts from her contemporaries to try to gain a full picture of who she was. And that picture might never be complete. And I think for me, at least, that's what's so intriguing. And that's what leads to various representations of Anne in literature, television, film, historical novels, fan fiction. Like we can't get enough because we are trying to put the pieces together. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think it is that element of the unknown and the fact that she is open to interpretation that means people connect with her on so many different levels, you know, all the different ends and some people are drawn to one and some people are drawn to another. So it's incredible. I will just mention though, for anyone that's at Hampton Court, if you look up to the ceiling, you will find lots of falcon badges that Henry, thankfully, didn't reach and lots of other little little (laughs) hints of her life there, which is, yeah, which is really amazing. And I will say that um, I did visit Hampton Court as an undergrad. I I studied abroad in Oxford and I was able to visit Hampton Court Palace. And I am forever grateful to whoever the person was who worked, who was working and giving tours because I had mentioned uh, shyly, I'm not very shy, but you know, when you're in England, you're like, oh, I'm at Hampton Court and I'm actually actively doing research as an undergraduate about, you know, Henry and Anne. And people are probably like, yes, yes, yes. You and like everybody else who's come through here. But one employee there was like, did you know that you can still see her initial? And I remember just having this moment of wonder. It felt so magical. I felt like I was connecting with her. And I don't remember the name of that person, but it's just one of those experiences you have as uh, someone who's very invested uh, in the Tudors and in Anne Boleyn to have this sort of magical experience where she sort of comes to life before your very eyes in an unexpected way, I think is really exciting. Uh, Hats off to Hampton Court uh, and all of their tour guides and employees for being so wonderful to all of the visitors that come through. Definitely one of my favorite places in the world. And I go back every time I'm in London and will continue to do so till I'm a little old lady. (laughs) (laughs) And so last question for you, what do you ultimately hope to achieve through all this amazing work and research and study that you're doing? Well, I hope my work shows that the hypersexualization and eroticization of Anne Boleyn is not a new phenomenon, uh, but one that has a long history that began during Anne's lifetime. So the next time someone reads a pre-modern play or historical fiction novel set in the Tudor court or watches a Tudor period drama, I want them to consider which Tudor queens are hypersexualized or eroticized and which are not and why. I also hope my work encourages people to approach topics like pre-modern sex, race, and diversity in period dramas from a place of curiosity. Um, That's one of my biggest goals. And I really just want to produce work that's accessible and engaging in a way that invites people from different backgrounds to join the conversation. That's really where it's at for me. Yeah, how wonderful. I absolutely cannot wait to read your book. And I'm sure that all our listeners are feeling exactly the same. So if people want to to follow along and, and see what you're up to, where can they find you on online? Well, I'm on Twitter for now. (laughs) 
until the ship goes down, as most of us have been saying. Yeah. And my handle is my name at Yasmin Hashimi. Um, I'm also on Instagram less often. My handle is at Yasmin Hashimi PhD. I often post a lot about, well, not a lot, but when I'm posting, it's often about things at the Newberry. I'm exciting things with the occasional sprinkling of tutor, uh, tutor wonder and excitement. I do have a website yasmeenhashimi.com, but it's not active. It's ready, but I haven't clicked the button. I don't know why there's something official about that that I'm not quite ready for. But yes, they can they can find me on social media and we can connect there. Fabulous. Well, I think you need to click that publish button on your website. So <laughs> there's the inspiration for you. Now, the last thing, one of the last things we do on Talking Tutors is what I call 10 to go. So these are 10 questions just to get to know you a little bit better. So the first one is what was the last film or series that you watched? I think the question is what series haven't I recently <laughs> watched or rewatched because I'm always... I'm always watching something. Oh, it would definitely have to be Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story. It wow. just came out. I watched it this past weekend. That's Fabulous. definitely the one. I haven't gotten to that one yet. So what about a book that you've read more than once? I'm a comfort rereader. So I've reread several books. I would say probably one of my one of my favorite authors to read and reread is Lisa Claypest. She writes historical fiction romance novels. Um, so I'm prob I would probably choose any of hers. They're all so wonderful. I've comfort read and reread them during the pandemic a lot. <laughs> wonderful. And what about a favorite holiday destination? Ooh, Italy. I say, I say that because I've never been there. So it's at the top of my bucket list. I've seen it, you know, in films like Under the Tuscan Sun. I read from scratch and watched the adaptation on Netflix. And I suddenly felt compelled to start creating pasta sauce from scratch. <laughs> and of course, I would love to get into the Vatican archives and see Henry's letters to Anne Boleyn. So it's Italy for me across the board, whether it's for work or play. Oh, the Vatican and the love letters is on my bucket list too. Um, so when you were a child, what did you hope to be or what, what did you want to be when you were older? A lot of things. I was one of those children who was like, I'm going to be a singer and an actress and a writer and a teacher. And I knocked two of those out of the way. So not so bad. Well, yeah, you did pretty well. Yeah. I remember wanting to be an air traffic controller at some point. I don't know. I love airplanes. So I guess I, oh, you know, cool. unfortunately my math skills weren't up to par, So I had to give that one up. So what is something you love about where you live? Well, I just moved to Chicago about nine months ago. What do I love about it? I love that it's a big city that has all the attractions of a big city, great restaurants, good music scene, theater, which I love going to the theater. So I'm glad that's all here. Great public transportation. And yet each of the neighborhoods are like quite distinct. So you still get that, like, I don't want to say small town sense, but I feel like you really get the best of both worlds if you're not living downtown. And the humidity I could do without. Um, so you're obviously very busy with lots of study and research. What do you like to do to just relax and unwind a little bit? Sleep. <laughs> I love sleeping. I feel like ever since I finished my PhD, I was like, I just want to take naps. 
Like, it's amazing. I also love leisure reading, leisure reading romance novels. So if I'm, you know, if I have a day off and I don't have anywhere exciting to go or plans with friends to go out to dinner or something, I love to sleep in. I love to cozy up with a wonderful romance novel and a nice warm cup of tea, relax, and then probably watch something, maybe a period drama to like finish the night out with some takeout or something. Sounds pretty perfect. So what's, what's a um, favorite historic site, whether it be in the US or overseas that you'd like to visit? Well, my two favorite that I have visited were Hampton Court Palace, of course, and the Tower of London. There was something magical about being in places that felt both mesmerizing and haunting. And I really sort of felt like, you know, I was following in the footsteps of Anne, as you are <laughs> so familiar with. Um, and so that was a pretty, both of those uh, trips were pretty, pretty incredible and just felt like, wow. I remember at the Tower of London, one of the people who work there showed me where Anne would have arrived to the tower and like a door she would have walked through. And then, and they were like, and probably Henry would have greeted her here. And they were very kind enough because part of it was like closed off. And I was so enthusiastic, bless them. They let me <laughs> sort of, and I was like having my moment where it's like, now I'm going to like walk through as though like, you know, I am Anne and sort of see like, what does it feel like? What are you looking at as you're, you know, coming to the tower for the first time to to visit Henry? I think those moments are so exciting um, and magical. So those locations are pretty Pretty incredible, but also I would say they're all haunting in the sense that I know at Hampton Court, people say Catherine Howard's ghost sometimes appears. She did not appear to me. I was very disappointed. I actually waited as it started to get darker. I was like, if I just stand here long enough, surely she knows that like her presence is welcome. <laughs> um, and then of course the tower going into the church and, you know, seeing where Anne Boleyn was laid to rest and how outside there's, you know, it's been memorialized all of the people who were martyred and things like that so it's it's both magical and and haunting and and what is a mystery and it can be anything whether it be sort of historical or contemporary a mystery that you'd like to know the answer to I would probably be related to the Tudors I mean that's where most of my questions lie I mean I wouldn't say a mystery but or perhaps I would I would love to know how Anne felt about Henry, especially in the beginning of the courtship. Like, was this something that she welcomed or was this actually something she wasn't particularly interested in, but because of the power dynamics was not able to say no. I would love to to just know what was going through her head. Lucky last question for you. We've got a lot of listeners that like you are doing PhDs or well, you've completed yours, but that are doing theirs. So do you have any advice for students that are perhaps studying the tutors or maybe doing a PhD at the moment? Yeah, well, first I would say to try to take care of yourself. Um, and I say that earnestly because so often there's such a drive to get the work done, get the dissertation done, and sometimes taking care of yourself falls to the side or you miss out. I missed out on a lot of stuff with family and friends that, you know, moments that you really can't get back. And so I would say to, if possible, try to find that balance, even if it's on the weekend, not reading about your topic of interest and just like, leisure reading or going out and taking a walk like those moments of taking care of yourself are so important and you will thank yourself in the end for them and in terms of people who are studying the tutors in particular I would say um, and I hope other tutor scholars experts enthusiasts 
are okay with this, but I would say um, try reaching out to people who have already done this work and are doing this work. I've found that so many people have been incredibly warm and generous and welcoming. Social media really allows for that, you know, where you might not, you might have to wait until a scholar is in town on a book tour, giving a talk to really engage with them. Um, but I've had such fabulous interactions. I remember once I, I was tweeting about as I was working on my work on the racialization of Anne, and I was thinking about her portrait. And Dr. Owen Emerson responded to me and was like, hey, we have a portrait here. And like, is there anything I can do? Can I take pictures and send them to you? Is there anything I can do to help you with this work? And gosh, I just, I so appreciated that because I was like, first of all, I love your work. Why are you following me? Not in a mean way, but I was like, oh, wow. Like, you know, as you start to share your work, people start to know you. And as you said, it feels weird to be considered an expert when you're like, I'm just a forever student. But I will say that I feel like the community is really warm and welcoming and is really open to new ideas. I was really nervous to share my work on racializing Anne because I know that any sort of conversations and work on race can be quite polarizing. And my intention wasn't to wasn't to do that or to sort of tear down a historical figure that we all love. It really just came from a place of curiosity and deep research and, and opening the conversation even wider. And so I really appreciated all of the positive responses that I got. So yeah, if you're out there studying the tutors, tweet me, send me a tweet, contact me on Instagram. I'm happy to hear about your work learn more about the tutors uh, and to also help you in any way that I can. Oh, that's so wonderful and generous. And and yes, I've been a part of the online tutor community since 2009 and, and I'm still here and I can tell you that the majority of my interactions have been positive and, and lovely. So, you know, I totally, totally agree with you. And Dr. Owen Emerson is one of my dearest friends. So I'm so glad you mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm his biggest he, fan. He'll probably listen to this, but I am a huge fan of his work and his generosity oh, yes. and his interactions online. And and I also love the way he talks about his colleague, Kate, her work. Yes. I just think like that's the kind of scholarly environment that I want to be in, is someone who is uplifting you and sharing your work and also maybe helping you behind the scenes. But like that kind of generosity of spirit to me is so important. So oh, I'm not surprised that the two of you are friends oh. at all. <laughs> like <laughs> He's going to, to love hearing all that you've just said. So thank you. And the very last thing, and I promise I'll let you go and enjoy your day, is how to you to take away. So this is something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. So do you have a two to take away for us? I do. I have three. Um, I love it. The first love one. <laughs> well, I'm trying to cover all all of my different interests because my work, as you have heard now, is quite interdisciplinary. I'm covering literature, history, media studies, fan studies. So I tried to find uh, a compilation of those, oh, as well as race and uh, diversity and period dramas. I tried to find a compilation of those that could uh, be appealing to listeners. So the first one is Great Ladies by Sylvia Barbara Soberton. If you're interested in Tudor Queens, but also the women who surrounded these queens, the women who are privy to all of the goings on in the Queen's chambers, it is a fabulous book. I have it on my bookshelf here. It's so overly highlight. It was ridiculous how much I was highlighting and underlining and writing notes, but it was really wonderful. The second book is History, Fiction, and the Tudors, Sex, Politics, Power, 
an artistic license in Showtime, in the Showtime television series, which is edited by William B. Robeson. I suggest this one because I believe it's the only volume that's about just the tutors. And when it came out, I was so excited about it because it really affirmed that, you know, people who are interested, uh, especially scholars interested in period dramas, it's not just fluff work. There's actual interesting scholarship happening. Um, it covers any possible topic on the tutors from individual analyses of Henry's wives to the way that his children are portrayed to religion to artistic portraiture on screen it really covers the gamut and I think it's also exciting to read a book where you're hearing from multiple scholars about their areas of expertise so if you're into fashion there's a chapter on fashion um everything's there. It's wonderful. I wish I had finished my work in time to have been a part of something like that, uh, a collection like that, but it was so affirming. And it's really exciting. Even if you aren't a scholar, I think if you're interested in period dramas, it's still like readable and accessible in that way. And the last Tudor takeaway is African Europeans by Olivet Otel. It is a fabulous book. It is a trade book. So if you are a little bit apprehensive about reading a purely academic monograph, this book is for you if you're interested in race specifically in Blackness and thinking about Africans and where they were around the world. Um, if you're interested in thinking about Africans in Tudor England, you know, there's something for you there. And I think it really gives an understanding of history that we don't often get to hear about. And Olivette has also been incredibly generous and kind to me, um, as has Sylvia. So I'm happy to, I don't know, William. But I would love to. <laughs> so I'm also happy to plug the work of scholars who I know are engaging with early career scholars in the field, because I think that's so important. Wow, you have given us so much to, to think about, so much to go off and explore. This has been an absolute delight, really thought provoking. And I know I've got lots to reflect on now, and I, I imagine our listeners do too. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking tutors with us. Thank you so much for having me. I, I had told Natalie this earlier, but for all the listeners, I'm a huge fan of Natalie's work. I love the Talking Tutors podcast, love the On the Tutor Trail. I've, I feel like I'm an OG fan. So it's been really exciting um, to, to come on the podcast and get to talk about all things Anne Boleyn and popular representations. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.